The old pilot's plain tales. Gone for a Burton. Traditionally, pilots speak a great deal of indecipherable garble, which is used to bamboozle those from the outside of our tight little community into thinking we know something they don't. Of course, sometimes that's true, but as often as not, it's just a technical shorthand for the things we do. Mind you, we didn't think up the concept. For that, you'd have to go back a few centuries to those who braved the seas, particularly in the Navy, be it the original and royal one, or one of those other outfits that came along after. Funnily enough, a lot of what we say in the cockpit goes back to those salt-soaked seamen. Indeed, the term cockpit comes from the traditional name for the location of the controls of a boat, and is a sunken area or open well that would keep the salt-soaked seamen out of the worst of the weather. Some might tell you that on a ship, the cockpit area resembles the pit used to contain fighting cocks. Indeed, on a fighting vessel, it was often blood-splattered, as it would also be the working place of the ship's surgeon. They would, however, be mistaken. In the more formal world of the Royal Navy, from whence the term originates, the cockpit was named after the area where the coxswain was stationed, and it was where the midshipmen and master's mates were berthed. A coxswain literally means boat servant, derived from the term cock or cockboat, from the word cog, meaning a small vessel, and swain, an old English term which comes from Old Norse for boy or servant. Other terms have moved into common usage at the pointy end of an aircraft, in particular flight deck, which originally referred to the landing area of an aircraft carrier, but begins to appear around the time that the Boeing 747 came into being, so perhaps we can thank those politically correct top-floor executives for removing the giggle factor when the ladies refer to the pilot's working area on a big machine. Of course, there are other naval influences in aviation, which is why we measure an aircraft speed in knots. This goes back to the days of estimating a ship's speed through the water by using a chip log, or common log. This was a wooden panel weighted to float upright in the water, to which was attached a line tied evenly with spaced knots. The number of knots placed 47 feet 3 inches apart that passed through the hand during the time it took a 30-second sandglass to empty indicated the speed in knots. The coastal facility that was used to transfer people and cargo from a dock is called a port. This is thought to come from the term for a gateway that one would pass through to get from the dock to the city, and can be traced back to the Latin portus, meaning haven or harbour, or porta, meaning gateway, which was changed into the word port, which we find in Old French, Old English and Middle English, hence its adoption by aviators by adding air to become airport. Of course, being old, I still remember when the terms port and starboard were in common use in aviation. 
a direct carryover from the sailing terms, the port side, or left side when facing forwards, was traditionally the side of a ship that would be placed against the wharf or dock when in port. The ship would be loaded over the left boards, becoming laid board, from the Anglo-Saxon term laid, to load, giving us the modern term laden. This became the word larboard, meaning left or port side of the boat. Boats docked on the port side usually because the steering oar was generally attached to the other side. Again, from the Anglo-Saxon, the side oar or steerboard, literally meaning the side on which a vessel is steered, became starboard, rhyming with larboard. In the modern times of the 16th century, the confusion which arose when shouted over a strong wind and creaking timbers changed larboard into port, hence port and starboard. By the mid-1800s, the term had stuck and was in common use around the world. It was only after I'd been flying for some years that the modern terms of left and right gained traction. While I'm on this subject, a little historical knowledge can help even in today's modern flying as the left side of the aircraft is the port side, left and port both have four letters, and port is coloured red, the colour of the left side navigation lights. By the way, should you ever be lucky enough to enjoy a formal dinner when the after-dinner adult beverage is port, the decanter will traditionally be passed to the left and continue to pass around the table so everyone gets a glass. Except when the Bishop of Norwich attended a formal meal at Christ's College, Cambridge in 1785 because he hogged the port. Nothing was said, but when the bishop stood at his lectern the next day to preach his sermon, a note had been attached, which read, The bishop of Norwich is fond of his port, too fond for the villain won't pass when he ought. To this day, should you allow the port to linger, you might well be asked, Do you know the bishop of Norwich? Those aware of the tradition treat this as a reminder to move the decanter along, while those who don't are told, he's a terribly good chap, but he always forgets to pass the port. When Captain Jeff welcomes you aboard his mad dog, he is referring to the boarding of a vessel, when one would cross the side, known as the board. This comes from a number of sources. The Old English board with no a, the proto-Germanic word bodza, which itself comes from the old Saxon board again with no a, and the Dutch board with two o's. There's a bit of old Norse and old high German in there as well, including a bit of medieval Latin or Frankish, and from thence it came over with the Normans to mingle with its native cousins. By now, it has inextricably tangled together. By the way, if you're interested in going back even further, there's a similar word in Sanskrit. Our aircraft manifest is a direct carryover from a ship's record of cargo, passengers and crew given to customs and other port officials. It comes from the Latin manus, meaning hand, 
and Festus, meaning clear, evident, proved, clearly revealed. So it became a document or public declaration that would be handed over to reveal the contents of a ship, or in our case, aircraft. When I ring back to speak to some of my cabin crew, we'll get onto those terms soon, I'll be greeted on the interphone with a chirpy, Galley 4, Tracy here! The galleys on our flying machines began with the Greek word, gallia, thence the medieval Latin gallia, into the old French word galie, all of which were used to describe a slave ship and became associated with the hot working environment of a ship's kitchen. There is little doubt that today's cabin crew would agree with the presumed origin, as they often call the crew member given the task of working in the galley to cook and plate up food as the galley slave. Our cabin crew are those crew members who don't work in the cockpit, and their title is derived from late Middle English, itself from the old French, crue, meaning augmentation or increase which was the feminine past participle of croistra, grow, from the Latin crescia. There is no doubt that you'll need to forgive me for my appalling pronunciations, as there's no doubt that Old French and Latin are not my forte. The original sense of the word was a band of soldiers serving as reinforcements, hence by the late 16th century, it came to denote any organised armed band, or generally a company of people. To become cabin crew, our motley organised band of flight attendants have to work in the cabin. The late Latin term, capana, was the start of our little cabin story, which became the provincial word cabana, and then into Old French, cabane, before morphing into the Middle English, cabin, we know. Traditionally, it referred to a small hut, which adequately describes something like a mad dog, but perhaps it's a little unfair to refer to the A380 as having a cabin. Shouldn't it be called the palace area instead? When used as a verb, the dictionary quotes an example of usage as the cabined and confined lives of the poor, perhaps suitable for low-cost carriers. We all know that the most important person on an aircraft is actually the chief cabin crew, or manager, or chief flight attendant, etc. They are often called the purser, which is a term also stolen from the Navy. The naval purser is a warrant officer, the origins of whom can be traced back to King Edward the Confessor in 1040. A purser would purchase his warrant from the Admiralty and would then be allowed to become a middleman between the ship and the suppliers in port. They would buy supplies on behalf of the ship, making a small profit in lieu of pay, almost acting as a private merchant. In charge of items such as food, drink, clothing, bedding, candles, the purser was originally known as the Clerk of Bursa. Of course, the captain of a ship or aircraft have their origins back in Latin with the term caput. 
Doesn't that sound amazingly like the German word kaput, but spelt with a C and not a K, meaning broken and useless, no longer effective? I digress. From the Latin caput, meaning head, we get the late Latin capitanus, meaning chief, followed by the capitan, Old French, through to the Old English captain, meaning leader. However, I feel that there are plenty out there who might feel that the Old German caput would be better suited to some. The captain and first officer are also the pilots, in other words, one who steers. Our steely-eyed pilots start off life as a Greek pedon, meaning steering oar, which itself is related to pus of genitive podus for foot. From the Greek pedon, we get the medieval Greek pedotus, which refers to the rudder helmsman. The old Italian pidoto, Italian pilot, and then the Middle French version, pilote, which emerged in 1510 as the one who steers the ship, finally gives us the English pilot. The one thing that all these people recorded on our manifest, looked after by the crew and piloted by the captain need, is a plane to fly on. That word is simple enough in its origins, starting with the Latin planum for a flat surface, the adjective of which is planus, adopted by the French as plane. It refers more to the verb, the act of moving a flat or level surface, which is lifted by water or air, and has now become the noun plane. The aeroplane, though, is similar but comes from slightly different roots. Those of the Greek, planos, meaning wandering, and aero, meaning air. Whereas Captain Al might be accused of wandering air, it was the French who merged them into their current meaning in 1855 to give wings to a word which means a heavier-than-air-powered flying vehicle with fixed wings. Now that we have a machine to fly, we need to be able to trim it out. The old English word trimmen or trimian meant to make firm or arrange and seems to be the origin of trim. The word's history is obscure, but the current verb seems to date from the early 16th century when its usage became frequent and served many purposes. In nautical terms, it refers to trimming the sails to make them an efficient shape so that the tail-tails, strings of yarn on each side of the luff of the head-sail and on the leech of the main-sail, fly smoothly. If the tail-tails are flopping around, the sail is poorly trimmed. Trimming also refers to balancing the centre of gravity by positioning the cargo so that the ship lies evenly in the water. Much of this also applies to aircraft. We trim so that we don't have to continually deflect the flight controls, which is tiring and creates more drag on the aircraft, and we trim the centre of gravity by positioning cargo and on some types moving fuel around as well. There are, of course, many terms that I haven't covered that are particular to aviation that have come from earlier times, and here are just a few.
a beam, azimuth, ballast, bar, although I suspect that my usage has more to do with a drinking establishment than a mass of sand, bilge, bulk cargo, cabotage, centreline, chock, combing, compass, course, crab, dead ahead, fin, great circle, leg, bearing, the old man, pier, pitch, plot, propeller, first officer, sponson, stow, touch and go, waypoint, yaw, and on my aircraft at least, three sheets to the wind. Finally, to go for a Burton. There are several explanations for the origin of this informal British phrase. None of them have been proved to be the definitive etymology, although it's agreed that the phrase can be traced back to the RAF slang of World War II. It means to be killed when referring to an aviator, or to be ruined or destroyed when referring about a person or a thing. He went for a Burton over France last year. My laptop's gone for a Burton. But what exactly is a Burton? And why did going for one gain these meanings? Let's look at the two main theories, both of which demonstrate the black humour often needed to deal with the fact that World War II aviators were highly likely to be killed in action. The English town of Burton-upon-Trent, from whence the long-suffering Mrs. Old Pilot hails, is known for its brewing industry, and a Burton came to refer to a type of ale. When an aviator crashed into the sea, otherwise known as the drink, the idea was that the person had gone for a pint of beer. There was a famous firm of tailors called Montague Burton. If an airman went for a Burton, he'd died and gone to be fitted for a wooden suit, referring, of course, to his coffin. But I guess we'll never know for sure. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.